Technically, CarMax is a virtual reality company. You can shop the lot virtually, online, or you can see the cars in reality, on the lot. Or you could have the best of both worlds. We give you the freedom to shop or buy however you need. Like we said, virtual reality. Don't come for us, tech people. It's car buying reimagined. CarMax. Are you dealing with best life burnout, constantly striving for more, and quite frankly, over it? Maybe you just want more joy, peace, and laughter in your life now. Well, then let's go. Welcome to your new favorite podcast, Hot Happy Mess, hosted by me, your girl, Zuri Hall. We are celebrating our magic in the middle of life's messes. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday. Listen to Zuri Hall's Hot Happy Mess on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Have you heard of Ghost Church? My name is Jamie Loftus, the creator of podcasts like Lolita Podcast and My Year in Mensa. And what if I told you there are camps across the U.S. dedicated to communing with the dead, that their religion attracted Arthur Conan Doyle and the first woman to run for president, and that I've seen them for myself? My new series, Ghost Church, is the history of American spiritualism, begun by what many thought was a prank pulled by two teen girls that became a full-blown religion. It's a wild story, so listen to Ghost Church on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In 1609, Henry Hudson spent nearly nine months on a renegade journey in which he essentially hijacked the Dutch yacht De Halverman, belonging to his employers, the Dutch East India Company, taking it and its cantankerous crew of 12 gruff Dutch seamen and three segregated Englishmen nearly 5,000 miles off course. And though inadvertently discovering the great river that would come to eternally bear his name, he had no interest in the island of Manhattan or any of its inhabitants, rodent or human. What seemed to be the singular driving force behind this enigmatic sailor of English descent was the irrepressible fixation on finding his fame and glory by becoming the discoverer of the storied Northern Passage, the theoretical shortcut to China. And what begs some closer examination therein is the fact that Hudson not only defied his clearly defined orders from the VOC, but that he did so by harnessing data and intel from a school of thinkers that focused on an entirely different side of the planet. And if not for this pointedly proactive disobedience on the part of the aging rogue explorer, Henry Hudson, the course of history would have changed in innumerable ways. But Hudson did defy those orders, hijacking the Dutch yacht nearly 5,000 miles in the wrong direction, not to mention the wrong hemisphere, which illustrates a level of motivation that was more than just a whim. And the truth is, Henry Hudson would stop at nothing in order to stake his claim in the annals of this complicated history. Not an untapped fur trade that would make men rich for centuries. Not the finest natural port in the world available for the taking. And not even the well-being of his very own son. Nothing. 
This is the podcast Island. The story of how this culture, this world, this island, the place we now know as New York, came to be. My name is Chance Kelly, and I look forward to you saying, Wow, history is cool. Episode 4, Obsession, 1609. As the sun set on the year 1609, the rigid and often dyspeptic directors of the Dutch East India Company were glad to learn that their 65-foot wood-hewn yacht was not in fact at the bottom of the Barents Sea, nor frozen in an iceberg in the Arctic Circle, and that 15 of Hudson's 16-man crew actually made it back alive. And being that this one casualty was an Englishman, these meticulous Dutch merchants calculated the overall end cost of this voyage as fairly reasonable. However, needless to say, the objective that they actually sent Hudson up there to pursue, the navigation of the Northeast Passage to Asia over the top of Russia, was certainly not accomplished. Specifically, he was instructed to go over this skinny little island called Novaya Zemblia, which points right up at the North Pole. And that objective was unfulfilled not just for Hudson's insubordination, but because it was actually impossible in the first place. And even before accepting this commission from the Dutch East India Company, Hudson already knew that full well. <laughs> Didn't he, Meneer? Well, I have some doubts. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, the inimitable Dr. Yap Jacobs about whether Hudson actually knew that. He had, of course, tried this, this route before, and so had others, and they had failed. However, he may still have thought that some of the theories behind this idea were correct. And one of those more prominent theories came from a hardline Calvinist minister by the name of Petrus Plantius, Born in 1552 in what we call West Flanders today, Planches had fled Brussels following the fall of Antwerp in 1585. In addition to being one of the founders of the Dutch East India Company in 1602, Planches would also serve as its chief cartographer. Now this theory that we mentioned, that Planches was a strong proponent of, said that in spite of the remarkable cold and prevalence of pack ice in this region, that further toward the pole, as a result of constant sunlight on that area for most of the year, that the uppermost region of that circle, perhaps from somewhere north of 80 degrees latitude and up, was not ice, but open ocean of temperate climate and smooth sailing to the other side of the planet. That's entirely correct. Plantius is actually the one who can be credited with propagating the idea of a route to Asia straight over the pole, the North Pole. So that was his idea that once you would get north enough in, in summer, that the, the rays of the sun would be strong enough to melt the polar ice. So while Hudson had tried this twice before, this time he was working for the Dutch, the Dutch East India Company, who Petrus Plantius was a director of and the chief cartographer for. Plantius was pretty big on this idea, wasn't he? He ascribed to that theory, and, uh, and that's why Hudson received the instructions to try this route. So, yeah. Now, folks, latitude 
if you're like me, you don't remember much of that from geography class. But to put latitude into perspective, there are only 90 degrees latitude on the globe from the equator to the North Pole. That's 90 degrees, zero at the equator, 90 at the North Pole. Manhattan sits just above 40 degrees latitude. The Arctic Circle starts at 66 degrees latitude. So when we're talking about 80 degrees latitude, that's really far up there. And it's really cold. And one of the main explorers whose records and charts Hudson was following on this voyage was the aforementioned Willem Barents, the Dutch explorer who had been up here just about 15 years prior, who met his own end on that sea, searching for this very same passage to Asia in 1597. And in 1608, Hudson had made it to the same mark that Barents had recorded in 1595 of 79 degrees latitude in a wooden sailboat that was even smaller than the Half Moon. Yes, the Hopewell of the English Muscovy Company that Hudson took in 1607 and 1608 was only about 50 feet long. And in spite of boldly swerving around gargantuan chunks of pack ice for hundreds of miles, by 1608, Henry Hudson had seen for two years in a row now, with his own awestruck eyes, that the only thing that moves at will through the Arctic Circle are whales, polar bears, and terrifyingly large icebergs that dwarfed any sailboat he went up there in. I mean, humans eventually would reach the North Pole, but that wouldn't be for another 300 years. I mean, yeah, but it just doesn't seem to make sense. In spite of the two failures on these attempts in the same area in 1607 and 1608, after Hudson had seen with his own eyes that he couldn't make it, there was just too much ice, why <laughs> did he take this assignment from the Dutch telling him to go the, to the exact same place the, but via the exact same route? He didn't know. He had tried and failed, but then there are many other things that, that they tried and failed two times, three times, or even four times. So giving it another shot would not have been his preference, I'd say, but he had not rejected it as a, as a total impossibility. Yeah, or he had something else up his sleeve. I mean, the Dutch are talking about sending him exactly where he knows he can't get through. He knows it. Regardless, you know, of the fact that he's nodding at Petrus Planches, yeah, 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 I'll, I'll definitely try it. He had no intention of doing it. His specific instructions from the VOC in 1609 went like this. Henry Hudson, Englishman, shall about the 1st of April sail in order to search for a passage by the north around the north side of Nova Zembla and shall continue thus along that parallel until he shall be able to sail southward to the latitude of 60 degrees, and shall think of discovering no other route or passage except the route around the north or northeast above Nova Zembla. Yep. Sounds familiar. <laughs> Definitely tried that one already. And as I've mentioned before, one of the things that really amazes me about this overall epic story is the sheer randomness through which it all panned out. Because it was Henry Hudson's very mercurial and unpredictably rebellious nature that appears to have been as responsible for the history of this place that we now call New York as anything. That though an Englishman, 
Hudson certainly did not let any national allegiance guide or alter his dreams, let alone his employment. Charles Effenepauze will be right back after the break. I'm Debbie Brown, host of the Dropping Gems podcast, a podcast about the depth and potential of personal growth and the human spirit. It is the soft place to land where we seek to connect to the deepest parts of our soul awareness to bridge these beautiful conversations and tools of higher consciousness into our everyday life, all in service to our liberation and internal peace. This season, I will share guided meditations, daily words of affirmation, and I'll invite you to grab a pen and journal so we can continue the soul work towards reaching our destined potential together. Plus, I'll have amazing guests, experts from all over the field of mental health, spirituality, and well-being space. Listen to Dropping Gems on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I was elated when iHeart and Los Angeles Comic-Con announced they were partnering to make a new podcast. And after I begged them to make me the host, Hector, I immediately was like, we have to call you and get you on the program. Oh my gosh, Joelle, really? Yes, your SpongeBob podcast and your work at DC are out of this world. And I knew I wanted to geek out with you every week. Well, I know that you're doing a lot of awesome work over on the Fake Doctors, Real Friends, Scrubs, Rewatch podcast. And now we get to host our own mini comic convention delivered directly to ears all over the world. Right, and I'm so excited because we have some major guests coming up. Yes, like Ted Lasso showrunner Bill Lawrence, legendary actor, a.k.a. Moff Gideon from The Mandalorian, Giancarlo Esposito, and the guy who invented dancing for video games, Donald Faison. Oh, it's going to be spectacular. Plus, each week, we feature an eclectic mix of entertainment, such as trivia battles, deep dives into fandoms with experts, and music tracks from celebrities and themed bands. Listen to Comic-Con Metapod on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our Daily Story, a podcast by the Black Information Network. Host Ramses Ja is joined by journalists and thought leaders to tackle stories that are important to us. We should be able to look at it for what it is and say that, Will Smith, you're wrong. And then we can talk about the societal implications and the impact. Take the power and resources of the Black Information Network, the only 24-7 news network for and by the black community. Milwaukee, Wisconsin now has a new mayor for the first time in 20 years. It's a black person. Add discussions and interviews, and you've got our daily story. Did you read the story from News One where the black male professor thinks that more black women should marry white men? Unfortunately, I did. Subscribe now and get up to speed as soon as you start your day. Our daily story. It's 2022. What are some of the remaining obstacles to fair housing for black Americans? Individuals being basically locked out of society. Available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. To Hudson, it was pretty much an international free-for-all regarding whatever it took for him to find this northern passage. Now, there's another point that's very important to mention here, that after he was fired by the English Muscovy Company in 1608, and before he was officially hired by the Dutch East India Company in 1609, there was actually a third nation in the mix, wasn't there? Yes, it was negotiating with the French as well. And the much older, wealthier, and much better established nation of France, which had also been far more active in trading and activity in the Northwest Hemisphere, would have offered significantly more money than the Dutch Republic. 
That's possible. That's possible. I don't know the exact offer. Probably Van Metre has something to say about that. But the problem here is that we don't know how... We may not know exactly how much was offered. But yeah, it, it would seem likely to me that the French ambassador in the Netherlands, once he got wind of Hudson being hired, tried to use means to persuade Hudson not to do so. And just getting Hudson to consider an offer and go to Paris, for instance, would already be a coup. So it's a coup. It's an international status play to get an explorer from a rival nation to sail on your behalf. Not that this was a new concept at all. Columbus was an Italian sailing for the Spanish when he explored the southern part of the Western Hemisphere in 1492. Verrazano was an Italian sailing on behalf of the French king when he briefly entered the New York Bay in 1524. And as mentioned earlier, Estavo Gomez was a Portuguese sailor commissioned by Spain in 1525 when he also entered the New York Bay, also briefly, and then continued north to the Penobscot River in today's Maine, where he felt compelled to abduct 50 natives that he delivered as a gift to his king, Charles V, who to his credit was mortified by the act admonished Gomez, and set them all free. Now, yeah, with all the mystery swirling around Hudson and his nebulous legacy, one thing that is fairly clearly understood about him is that he was an absolute glutton for information, that he was nearly as obsessed about gathering the intel that would guide him on these momentous journeys as he was about finding this northern passage altogether, wasn't he? In this respect, Hudson is not particularly different from just about uh, anybody else involved in finding such a passage. This was a, a general practice. What you do is you sail to an area with all the possible information that you have, you test it, um, because in many cases the information that you have needs to be checked, and then you return, you hand in your journal, and some geographer would try to make a map based on older maps, uh, correct mistakes that were obvious uh, from the new information. And it would be a continual accumulation of uh, geographical and navigational knowledge. So yes, it is clear that Hudson played a role in this whole um, intellectual part of uh, the process of European uh, reconnaissance um, outside of Europe. Okay, yeah. So now in addition to Plantius, there's yet another Flemish refugee from whom Hudson gleaned a lot of information. Jodocus Hondius. Okay, now a full decade younger than Plantius and perhaps somewhat less ministerial in his approach to a worldwide view, Hondius was actually the first cartographer by the way, cartographer is just a fancy, old-fashioned name for mapmaker. He was the first one to disconnect Greenland from the mainland of this new world that we would come to call North America. But at the time, they didn't know what to call it, and they didn't know what was or wasn't attached to it. That's how unknown this new world was. Now, maybe because he was a little bit younger, maybe because he wasn't a Calvinist minister, who knows? Perhaps he just wasn't as rigid as Plantius. Hondius was decidedly more focused on the western side of the planet, the side on which so much less was known and so much less was explored so far. It seems that Hondius had 
contact with some of the uh, English explorers that ha- that had gone to to Virginia, with Weymouth and John Smith. It's even presumed that it was Hondius who supplied Hudson with the information gathered. Oh yeah, mercurial as he may have been, Hudson got around. He went to where the intel was, and along with these Dutch guys, Plantius and or Flemish and and Hondius, as we've mentioned, he and John Smith were friends. And John Smith's intel about the coast and inlets of this new land on which he had arrived as early as 1607 was critical to Hudson's pursuits. Now, as far as the Disney-style love story with the young gal from the Powhatan tribe, I'll leave that for another podcast. So by 1609, Henry Hudson had collected a lot of information about the western half of the planet. In fact, by the end of his 1608 voyage for which his journal does survive. By the time they had given up hope of going over Nevaya Zemblia, this is what he wrote. I therefore resolved to use all means I could to sail to the northwest. But now, having spent more than half the time I had, and only making a small amount of progress to contrary winds, I thought it was my duty to save food, wages and ship's gear, and returned speedily and arrived home at Gravesend, August 26, 1608. Now, the truth is that that's not how it went in 1608. What happened in 1608 was after they learned that they couldn't make it over Nevaya Zemblia, Hudson did everything he could to cut a deal with his English crew to get them to agree to go to look for a northwest passage. But it was simply too late in the year. It was already August, so they couldn't do it. So, yeah, I'll ask it again. If he couldn't get the English crew to go along with changing course and going west in 1608, what was it about the Dutch crew in 1609 that convinced them to go along with it? That is partly to do, I think, with the Dutch crew that he had. Some of these East India Company sailors may have been experienced, but on the southern route around Cape, the Cape of Good Hope. So they were used to tropical climbs and sailing into to the Arctic must have been um, a chilly experience for them. They may actually, interestingly, not even have been told when they set out that they were going north. It was usual for such journeys to be kept secret, for the destination to be kept secret. Really? Oh, yeah. Well, that happens later on with many expeditions that are sent out. Now, Yap, we should explain for clarification that the reason we refer to Jewett's journal instead of Hudson's for the 1609 voyage is because most of Hudson's has disappeared. Along with all the other speculation and intrigue of this voyage, the captain's missing journal is just yet another component which further texturizes this mystery. And so we have to rely on Hudson's ancient man of the sea, the cynical, cagey old Jewett for the global positioning and daily reporting of this mission. Yet even Jewett's journal has some significant gaps in it. The first one being at the very start of the trip. They leave Amsterdam on April 4th, 1609. And the next entry is one month later on May 5th, when they're cresting the North Cape, the top of Norway. And then there is another gap of two more weeks. Now, the North Cape, the top of Norway, that's above this 66-degree latitude. They're, they're in the Arctic Circle. They're in the Barents Sea. And again, as Yap just told us, these sailors were used to taking the southern route. That's Africa. <laughs> that's hot. 
These Dutchmen, these sea beggars, they'd never come here before to the Arctic. Also, as Yap said, it's very likely they didn't know where they were going. A few Dutch ships had actually sailed there. Um, they, the Dutch hadn't really started whaling around Spitsbergen um, at Svalbard at that point in time. So I think that his crew may have thought at some point, well, this is really getting too cold. This is getting dangerously cold. Let's start back, go back. So though it's unwritten anywhere in Jewett's journal, one theory about this voyage is that during those silent periods in the journal that the crew was in the process of pursuing a mutiny. I think it's distinctly possible that there was at least a threat of a mutiny, but it's, it is, in my, to my mind, not very likely that an actual mutiny, that is, a takeover of the ship and putting the captain out of command, occurred. Because they wouldn't go on going north if that had happened. And regardless of the exact course of events during that first six or so week period during which Jewett's journal has all these gaps, what appears to be happening, to my eye anyway, from about the middle of May forward, is Jewett recording a confluence of unreliable weather, currents, and navigational data. Waypoint islands out of position, and other islands not there at all. May 19th. Our latitude was 70 degrees. 30 minutes and we were inside a virtuous island, which placed us 60 miles ahead of our estimated position due to the set of the stream of the White Sea. But by 2 o'clock, the wind was directly ahead of us, and we could not get about the North Cape, so we tacked toward the east. May 28th. We should have been 910 miles off the Pharaohs, and we had them inside only 48 to 54 miles off. June 2nd, at noon, headed west-southwest to find Bass Island, discovered by one of the ships of Martin Frobisher in 1578, to determine whether or not it was charted in its proper latitude. June 3rd, we believed ourselves to be near Bass Island. By midnight, we looked out for it, but could not see it. June 6th, the wind varied between east, southeast, and southwest, making us danger heading many times in a general west-southwest direction. So, what I read between the lines here is that Jewett is covering his tracks, essentially documenting enough inaccuracies and nautical hazards by which he can justify that they didn't have a choice but to set a course westward. But hold on. Covering whose tracks exactly? His own? His crew's? Or his captain's? And were they only violating the orders of the company? Or were they taking their rebelliousness to an entirely different level? I mean, let's keep in mind who these half-moon sea beggars were. They were fighters. Rebels, underdogs by birth, by nature, by experience, it was in their DNA. And Hudson knew that completely. He knew exactly what these Dutch mercenary sailors were made of. And he knew that once unleashed, that violence and aggression on the open seas 
could in and of itself become the very smokescreen he needs in order to effectively seek out and once and for all find this northern passage, which he was by now thoroughly convinced lay on the western side of the planet. This was just unthinkable. You can't do that and return empty-handed and expect to be um, applauded. But by now, Hudson had devolved into a man who would answer not to the English, not to the Dutch, not to any nation, and quite possibly not even to God. This was a man obsessed with finding the Northern Passage and willing to do nearly anything to make it a reality. Now hold that thought, because we'll be right back. Family. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner, really testing the limits of that phrase, the more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. Tableau wasn't just any pop music star. He was the biggest thing in Korean hip-hop. But then, rumors on an anonymous internet forum started to spread, saying that Tableau wasn't who he said he was. I'm Dexter Thomas, the host of a new podcast from Vice about a bizarre conspiracy theory that became an obsession not only in Korea, but internationally. All of season one is out now for listening. You can check the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts for Authentic, the story of Tableau. I'm Nikki Lynette, the host of About a Girl, the podcast that tells the incredible stories of the women who play pivotal roles in creating legends and legacies of popular music. You know about Bob Dylan, but you may not know about his secret marriage to Carolyn Dennis, his backup singer and creative collaborator who helped keep their relationship and their daughter private. You definitely know about Jimi Hendrix, but have you heard the story of Linda Keith, who broke the heart of boyfriend Keith Richards, leaving him in order to help expose Jimmy's genius to the world? Lisa Bonet and Lenny Kravitz, Tina Marie and Rick James, as a musician, social impact artist, and mental health advocate, I'm fascinated by these complicated and powerful women who have lived too long in the shadows of music history, treated as footnotes to greatness instead of the foundational figures they are. Listen to About a Girl starting on May 16th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. He had to ship, he had to crew, he had to provisions. So he had to means. So this, this really is... A- as I've described it before, a project manager going able. And speaking of financial fuel, one more back pocket plan B option involved the standing offer that the state's general had issued several years earlier of 25,000 guilders to anybody who discovers the Northern Passage or more than 30 times what the VOC was supposed to be paying him. Yeah. So actually, Hudson may even have said to them, hey, you know, if we get these 25,000, we'll split it. It's kind of the, the bank robber's deal, that kind of thing. And so with these four calculating Englishmen finally in full accord with these 12 rabid Dutchmen, the renegade half moon beelines its way west across the North Atlantic 
on the lookout for land and or opportunities. And the first of those opportunities is one that we've already mentioned, which came on June 25th. June 25th. We steered west by compass until 12 o'clock, at which time we sighted a sail and gave her chase. She was sailing eastward, and we sailed after her until 6 o'clock. So this boatload of unpious, profit-seeking men heading west sees a ship heading east and does a 180 and chases it for six hours. By the way, that's 12 hours round trip. That's half a day. That's a motivated chase. But whatever intel or riches awaited them aboard that rival ship, they would never know. Because after having lost its foremast 10 days earlier, the usually speedy hunter-chaser yacht, the Half Moon, was hamstrung and certainly not firing on all cylinders at this point. But that didn't deter these hungry seamen. Because when they finally did put in at a French settlement called La Havre, on what is called Nova Scotia today, where they would have made available to them everything they would need to repair their foremast and foresail. And as soon as their ship was completely repaired, following a week of friendly relations and active trading with the natives, this is what Hudson's crew did to thank the natives of La Havre. July 25th. Very fair weather and hot. In the morning, we manned our scout with four muskets and six men, took one of their Indian shallops and brought it aboard. Then we manned our scout and boat with twelve men, and muskets two stone-point murderers, and drew the savages from their houses, and robbed them as they would have done to us. Then we set sail, and came down the harbour's mouth, and rode there all night, as the wind blew right in. The Stone Point murderers that Jewett mentions were basically handheld cannons, 17th century bazookas, and this type of assault on an unsuspecting native village would have been nothing short of devastation. Yet, as I said, the story is complicated, and we can't blame the Dutch. We can't blame the English. We can't blame the Protestants or the Catholics or any other large group for this series of atrocities. And it doesn't require a particularly spiritual individual to make an assessment that there must have been some kind of karmic intervention here, especially when you look at what subsequently befell this rogue band once they actually entered the waterway that its leader was convinced would take them to China. And yes, at the culmination of the navigational disaster that followed, Hudson would race back down the majestic river that would come to eternally bear his name and cruise right past the lush, green, wild island of Manhattan without giving either a second thought and sail his Dutch yacht directly back to Europe with the dark truth of exactly what happened on this schizophrenic voyage, locked deep away inside his own tortured psyche. And what he may have told his 12-year-old son as explanation for these actions, one can only imagine. But amidst all the mystery, 
surrounding this sphinx-like navigator. One thing is for certain. That Henry Hudson's obsession did not end in 1609. Island is an original production, researched, written, and produced by Chance Kelly and Dr. Yap Jacobs. Research associate, James Mallon. Executive producer, Alec Baldwin. For Cavalry Audio and iHeartRadio. Our 17th century Dutch musical arrangements are courtesy of Camerata Triactina. And I am your host, Chance Kelly, thanking you for boarding our voyage of discovery en route to saying, Wow, history is cool. We'll see you next time. Folks, we want to thank you once again for listening, remind you to please listen in order, and tell you that we realize that there's a lot to digest on this untamed wild island of Manhattan. And for that very reason, we've set up an email just for you. So whenever you have a question, just email us at thepodcastisland at gmail.com thepodcastisland no caps, no punctuation, no spaces at gmail.com and you can also find that email address on our website thepodcastisland.com send us as many questions as you have email us as often as you like because your questions and comments if they're nice will be the content of our periodic review episodes which will come approximately every four or five episodes because as we've said this story is complicated but that's okay because the doctor is in and you will be kept up to date so climb aboard history is cool Tableau wasn't just any pop music star. He was the biggest thing in Korean hip-hop. But then, rumors on an anonymous internet forum started to spread, saying that Tableau wasn't who we said he was. I'm Dexter Thomas, the host of a new podcast from Vice about a bizarre conspiracy theory that became an obsession not only in Korea, but internationally. All of season one is out now for listening. You can check the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts for Authentic, the story of Tableau. Please state your name and occupations. Georgia Durante, model, stunt driver, wheel woman for the mob. The rules were simple. Don't talk to anyone. Don't ask questions. Always park a block away. Make sure you're not being followed. And how did you make it out alive? <laughs> I drove like hell. Wheel Woman, Confessions of a Getaway Driver. On the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Dear Owen Wilson is a new podcast hosted by comedy tycoon Blair Saki. Based off a real letter that Blair wrote to Owen Wilson in 2007, the show features your favorite comedians and personalities writing letters to celebrities they loved growing up. Following their letter, Blair hits them with an extremely shrewd and hard-hitting interview, aided by the support of her private detective, Lucian Wickles. Trust me, you're not going to want to miss this. Listen to Dear Owen Wilson on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.